This is a Federal News Network podcast. Back on the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Alliant 3. To those in the know, this is the name of a promising new government-wide acquisition contract for technology services. The request for proposals is now out and open for comments. One move by the General Services Administration threatens the whole deal in the view of our next guest. Federal News Network's Tom Temin spoke with federal sales and marketing consultant Larry Allen. Larry, there was something GSA did with respect to Alliant 3, which the entire industry has been anticipating. The draft RFPs, what did GSA do or maybe not do? Tom, I think the GSA Alliant 3 team is batting a solid 500. First, make no mistake, they did a really good job about getting a draft RFP out and put together in a very short period of time, a short period of time that they needed to work in because Alliant 2, the existing contract, has proved to be very popular. And that means that people are expecting great things for Alliant 3 as well. So why not batting a 1,000, Tom? They're not batting a 1,000 because GSA, at least for now, has made the decision that they're not going to have one-on-one discussions with industry. Keep in mind that we're in the draft RFP stage, the time when uh, agencies want to collect information from industry. They want to make sure that they have an acquisition vehicle that does the things that it should that meets the expectations. They also want to make sure that from an industry point of view, there aren't any significant hurdles that would make this program as successful as everyone wants it to be. Uh, And yet the Alliant 3 team has said, we're not going to do one-on-one meetings with companies right now uh, because we feel that that would give people an unfair advantage. Well, You certainly can see their point if this was the actual RFP, Tom, when people were putting together bids, but we're not at that stage yet. And if you contrast that against what GSA's sister team is doing with the Oasis Plus contract for services, the Oasis Plus team during the formation of their draft RFP, which we expect any day now, they have had abundant discussions with industry for over a year leading up to this point, getting lots of industry input and shaping the RFP accordingly so that when the draft comes out, it should already fairly well reflect what's going on. The Alliant 3 team hasn't had the time to have those discussions prior to the issuance of this draft. So this is the only time really that they're going to be able to have them now. Well, that's kind of strange because this is all happening under the Federal Acquisition Service, one wing of GSA. So what could be behind the inconsistency in approach here? I'm not really sure, Tom. I think that, you know, sometimes what we've been told uh, by uh, contractors is that government acquisition professionals generally, not just at GSA, are a little bit more reluctant to have discussions with industry, even in the pre-acquisition phase, than maybe some others or maybe than they have been in the past. But Look, it's not just that industry doesn't have a chance to have those discussions. And in a one-on-one discussion, you can talk about things that you wouldn't talk about with a group of competitors. That's what makes them so important. It's that evidence has shown over and over again that you get the best acquisition outcomes by having communications with your industry partners when you can have them. Conversely, not having good conversations can lead to protests. It can lead to industry making less optimal responses than they otherwise might because they have to kind of guess at what it is the government's asking for. 
So I'm perplexed, Tom, by this decision. It's not consistent with what other parts of GSA have done just recently, and it's not consistent with what's kind of become an established best practice. Yes, you wonder whatever happened to Mythbusters. Remember that? Right, right. Uh, Mythbusters that, not ironically, GSA's acquisition policy team had a large hand in drafting. We're speaking with Larry Allen. He is president of Allen Federal Business Partners. And also coming up all of a sudden is the contractor vaccine mandate question. It's been a little bit in limbo for a couple of weeks because of the limitations on an injunction in a district court that came down. And so the administration is trying to figure out what their guidance should be. And something just changed late last week. It did, Tom. And it looked like this was going to be a Halloween present from government to industry with the reinforcement of the vaccine mandate on contractors and inside government contracts. There was substantial speculation beginning of this week that OMB would issue guidance to, con to contracting officers uh, saying, hey, we want to try to enforce the vaccine mandate in these areas where we can because the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals had narrowed the scope of a ban that the district court had put on the vaccine mandate. But the 11th District Court is not the only legal case, Tom. There are multiple other legal cases before different appellate courts right now. And there are bans in place that may not affect the entire country, but in, in fact, substantial parts of it. So this is a real patchwork of even if OMB flipped the switch, you know, it could be effective in one state and not the two states right next to it or vice versa. All of which I think led OMB to smartly issue a directive late last week to contracting officers saying, don't take any action now to enforce this. Even though the contract clause may be in some contracts, we don't want you to move forward to enforce it now. And we want you to think twice about putting the clause in new contracts that you issue. I think all of this, Tom, is a nod to reality. There are multiple court cases that have yet to be resolved. I think most people, including myself, expect that this issue will end up before the Supreme Court uh, or with the withdrawal of the executive order if we get to a point where the administration decides that COVID-19 is not the threat that it once was. So I think OMB's initial directive to have the acquisition community sit tight and not take any action is definitely the right way to go. Yeah, the question is, you know, fundamentally, if you are not vaccinated, you may be susceptible to COVID, but that's your problem. That doesn't mean you're going to give it to everybody else around, I think. Right. You're not going to give it to everybody else around. And I think there's also, you know, the question, the central question is whether or not the president overstepped his authority via the Procurement Act by saying, Procurement Act gives me the right to require that everybody who works for a government contractor get this vaccination. And that's really what the legal wrangling is over. That's kind of a fundamental question each administration deals with in its own way, maybe a little bit more aggressively in the Biden administration relative to, say, Republican administrations. But that is, what rights does the buying power of the government give over other areas of contractor life? I mean, really, that's that's the real question here more than vaccines. In other words, because we buy from you, you have to go rob a bank. Well, 
That's not clearly something any administration would have the power to enforce. I make an absurd example to illustrate the bigger point is what is the reach of the government into operations of contractors by virtue of being a client, a customer. And Tom, I think you're on the right track there, even though that is, you know, the outstanding type of examples. These are the same types of questions that judges in the various appellate courts have asked the administration to uh, show uh, why it's reasonable, why it's uh, within the bounds of a procurement act. You know, procurement is important. It's certainly important to people like you and me, but hey, let's put it in perspective. Procurement's procurement, right? And uh, it should have, it shouldn't be able to uh, dictate how people live their lives uh, the, in ways that don't really impact uh, the performance on a government contract. Yeah, they could say, well, because you're a contractor, you have to change the white lines in your parking lot to yellow lines or blue lines or whatever the case might be. I mean, there's a million things you can think of and or, or the whole energy question, what your energy profile, energy consumption should be by virtue of being a contractor. I don't know the answer, but it seems like a question that never quite gets resolved. I think the answer is that they should have to give 10 percent of their gross profits, 5 percent to Tom Temin and 5 percent to Larry Allen. Well, we'll put our transfer numbers online and anyone that wants to send money can do so. <laughs> Larry Allen is president of Allen Federal Business Partners, speaking there with Federal News Network's Tom Temin. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive-in-residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, but she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a 
It's an interesting and challenging yeah. <laughs> sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there, um, I, didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and, you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of and involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job, and he thought about explicitly, was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve. Um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals, um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. 
looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in, bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down on the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town, where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. 
But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or healthcare, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly <laughs> and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha. And thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.